0: Good afternoon and welcome to our for the to the lunch for our for, for our convention, our 25th anniversary convention. And one, one before we get to the main part of the program, uh, which will be have Al Regnery interviewing uh, uh, Attorney General Meese and Manny Klausner, uh, it is my pleasure to start out by introducing you to one of the founding directors of the Federal Society and also the co-founder and I believe still publisher. Is that right? Of the, uh, of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Um, you've seen, until just now, you've seen on, this, on the screens a whole series of uh, the covers of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, 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 up there. Um, the federal sites had a close relationship with JLPP for its entire existence and membership in the society has always included a subscription to the Harvard Journal. Uh, S- Spence Abraham, from his position at the Journal, uh, met with those who were starting the Federal society and I guess in a way one could say they combined forces uh, as a result uh, when the Federal Society was was founded he, he was he was a founding director one of the five founding directors of it until his election to the uh, United States Senate in 1994 and after his term in the Senate he served as the secretary of the Department of Education uh, he is the did I say education? <laughs> was, was, it, was energy the other department in addition to education that Reagan had wanted to eliminate?
1: <laughs>
0: Sorry about getting those two confused. Uh, but anyway, without further ado, Spence is now head of Abraham Consulting Group. And without further ado... Uh, one of the people who's been been key to the Federal Society since its earliest days, uh, the Honorable Spence Abraham.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Gene. The the truth is that uh, President Reagan wasn't the only person who wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy. And on December 31st, 2000, when I had was sort of in this period having lost my reelection campaign for the Senate and along with my wife was hoping that that maybe there'd be a chance to serve in the federal government. We were about to end the old year uh, somewhat depressed because I hadn't heard from anyone connected to the transition. I'd seen my name mentioned in the papers on several occasions as a potential candidate for the Department of Transportation because I was a Michigan senator and had served on the Transportation Committee in the Senate, but no word had been forthcoming. And then about 6 o'clock on New Year's Eve, we got a call at our home, and um, I picked up the phone. The White House operator was on and said, please hold for Mr. Andy Card. So, of course, now the chest is thumping and there's nervousness, either it's good news or bad. Andy Card comes on and says... How are you doing? I said, fine. How are you? Back and forth a while. Then he said, I'm calling to see if you'd be interested in serving as secretary of, at which point I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it sort of hit me that energy and yes had crossed paths in the middle <laughs> of the conversation. And so I said, you know, Andy, I said, uh, this is great. I'm excited. I'll do anything, etc., etc." There's just one little thing in my background I think you should know before we, you know, make this public. And he said, you know, of course, with, with all the trepidation one has these days in Washington, when somebody says one little thing, <laughs> he said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's just a little thing, very tiny, tiny, but it's, you know, just something. I, and he said, okay, well, well, what is it? And I said, well, you know, it, along the way in the, in the Senate, I just happened to be the co-sponsor of the bill to eliminate the Department of Energy. But otherwise, I think I'm really... <laughs> <laughs> really ready for the job, you know, I mean, I, and so he said, you know, at that point, sort of dead silence on the other end, my career now, you know, sort of careening towards uh, oblivion, and he said, well, I've got to talk to Governor Bush and call you back, so my wife and I sat staring at the phone for, you know, the next two hours, the phone rang finally, it was him, and he said, you know, uh, the president-elect actually thinks it's kind of funny, Uh, he, (laughs) So, so, of course, two weeks later, I had to appear for my confirmation hearing. And the first question that was asked was, do you still favor eliminating the Department of Agriculture? <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't anymore. <laughs> so, when did you change your mind? About two weeks ago. You know,
1: so, <laughs>
2: I grew an office, you know, and uh, like so many others in this town, came to see the importance of large bureaucracies. So, um <laughs> Anyhow, that's a large bureaucracy story. Let me tell you about a small one. Uh, and, Gene, and it's very nice to have me have a moment or two here. Before uh, we started with live footage on these screens, of course, you did see uh, the covers of, of many of the uh, editions of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And today, the story of the journal is, of course, a, a really positive and, and robust one. Uh, there are about uh, 8,000 subscribers making it... I believe the second most widely distributed law review in the country. Uh, I think this year's editorial uh, board is made up of 140 students at Harvard Law School, uh, which is about 10% or more of the, of the Harvard Law School student body. Uh, but it was not always as such. And in 1976-1977 school year, a group of us, a very small at that time group of self-identified and publicly identified conservatives, thought that the somewhat unbalanced nature of publications at the law school not only made it difficult for us to participate in the legal discussion, but also sort of prevented anybody of conservative viewpoints from having much of an opportunity to publish in the marketplace of ideas. And so we conceived of the idea of a journal that would be a place in which conservative writers, uh, uh, writers from uh, law school professorial ranks to, to philosophers, uh, to public officials, might have a place uh, to publish. And we approached uh, the dean of the law school, Dean Albert Sachs at the time, and unveiled our creative idea of having one journal among all the others at Harvard that would in fact print or publish a conservative view from time to time. His uh, reaction was, of course, very uh, surprising to us when he said, I can't imagine allowing that to happen here. And, you know, we would never fund an explicitly, uh, a, a publication that had an explicit political bias. <laughs> so we said, gee, you know, you've got the all the different law reviews. And we had done a study, and over the previous de- a dozen years, not one conservative-oriented Piece that appeared in the Harvard Law Review, the Harvard Journal on Legislation, uh, the Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Review, any of the other publications there. And so we tried very hard to change his mind. He said, no, Harvard would not provide funding. And so we went, we went back <laughs> to the drawing board and decided that perhaps we could find some support in this country for such a publication. And over the course of the next year, that was sort of my job. And happily, we were able to find and secure enough funding to publish a first edition of the journal in the 77-78 school year. And one of the truly most memorable and, and amusing meetings I've ever been part of in a lot of different aspects of my career, probably the most interesting, was going back the following fall and informing the dean that, lo and behold, there actually was enough money, and we did not need Harvard's money at all. At which point he said, well, you can't use the name Harvard. And we said, why would that be? He so, well it might associate our, our name, this institution's name, with uh, topics and with with content and with things that we don't think the name Harvard should be connected to. At which point we said, gee, you know, there's like the Harvard House of Liquor down the street here. And they're like, if you're letting it go that far, there's the Harvard House of Pizza, there's, you know, quite a few others. And he said, you know, no. And so we then went into sort of a threatened legal Challenge situation for a while, at which point ultimately he relented and let uh, a happy band of about 11 law students, uh, of which I was part, uh, work uh, during an entire school year to produce the first edition of the journal at the end of the 77 78 school year. And uh, I would be remiss today if I didn't mention that the other uh, co chair and, and co founder of the journal. Uh, Stephen Eberhardt, who uh, passed away tragically shortly after graduating from Harvard, uh, was really more than than anybody the the bulwark that made this possible because he really was the first editor in chief and, and by far one of the most amazing intellects I've ever known and and so I wish Steve were here today to see uh, how this movement uh, in in small part. Uh, motivated by that journal and by a lot of other people. Steve was at the first uh, uh, Harvard or first Federalist Symposium of how far we have come and so I would conclude by just saying to the Harvard students of today we thank you and are excited about the dramatic increase in the ranks. Uh, to all of you who are part of this society we hope you enjoy the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, and we're, we're very excited uh, at how far it's come And to the people who have built the Federalist Society, to Gene in particular, Leonard and the others on the team, I just want to say thank you for the great working relationship we've had uh, between the publication and the society. Uh, It's been great to be part of the team. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Spence. Uh, that, 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 was, that was wonderful. Uh, I don't think I actually knew uh, uh, much uh, a large part of that story, so I uh, enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I now want to ask our panel to take their seats. Um, and I'm going, as, as, as I do that, I'm going to turn this over uh, for the rest of the program to Al Regnery, who has a very deep pedigree in the conservative movement. His, his his father published most of the books on on most of the books on conservative ideas. That you. Certainly most of of the authors that that probably most of you know of, Uh, uh, all of them in the modern American conservative movement. I I, I, think they're going to turn it off and down the line. I think you pretty much much got every one of them at one stage or another. Uh, (laughs) And Al himself worked for years at Regnery Publishing, uh, running it after his father's retirement, and now is the publisher of the American Spectator. Um, he's just written a book, and I actually don't know the title. But I, uh, on on the American conservative movement, what is the title, Al? The title's
3: Upstream: The Ascendance of American Conservatism. Um,
0: and it, it make, makes him ideally suited uh, to to do to do this interview. And I'm going to turn it over to, to Al, uh, Al Al Regnier. Al. <laughs>
3: Thank you uh, very much, Gene. Um, I should say at the beginning, as Gene said, I just finished writing this book, which will be published in February. And having published many books myself, one of the things that I always told authors was whenever they had the chance, they had to plug their book. (laughs) (laughs) So it is up on Amazon. The title is Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. You can order it now, and it will be shipped when it's published. (laughs) Um, what we're going to do is really interview Ed Meese about the last 25 years, and I know that you've heard um, a good deal about the last 25 years over the last couple of days. Um, if any of you deign to read the Washington Post, there was a, actually a fairly nice story for the Post on Thursday about the, um, or Friday, I guess it was, about the, uh, the last 25 years of the Federal Society. At least it brought up a good many of the things that have happened. Um, I certainly cover it in my book. Um, I think that the that the rise of, of the, this movement of lawyers, of the, um, the, the gathering of, of this many conservative lawyers is one of the great, um, great pieces of the growth of the conservative movement in this country. Um, certainly when the Federalist Society was started in the early 80s, about the same time that Ronald Reagan came to Washington, um, there were lots of things happening that conservatives recognized needed to be fixed. Um, one of the principal ones certainly was the courts uh, the law schools, obviously, were no small part of that. Um, Ronald Reagan, as Ed will tell us, recognized what those issues were. With um, Ed Meese at his right hand, it certainly had a great deal to do with what happened. But um, all of these things came together at the same time to some extent. Um, and the result is that this this organization of lawyers was started in, in the early 80s, um, grew as time went on and has had an enormous influence. And I, as I say, I think that, that it is probably the brightest um, aspect of, of modern American conservatism that there is. Um, let me start, Ed, by asking you sort of a question that relates to that. Um, what, what was happening in the 80s was, has been described as the perfect storm, um, and that, that you had all of these issues coming together at the same time. It was the same time the Federalist Society was started. I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit and tell us how that perfect storm got started and what happened.
4: Okay, Al, I'll be happy to. Uh, Is this on? Yes. Yeah. It was kind of interesting when uh, Gene Meyer asked me to uh, participate in this panel to to learn that I'd become an historical artifact. (laughs) But in any event, uh, I I do uh, appreciate the chance to talk about this because as we discussed earlier today with the group, uh, it's important to get the record of what really happened in the 80s, uh, well-known, particularly among some of the younger people that are here and among students in the Federalist Society, uh, because uh, uh, we want to get the the accurate story out before the revisionists set in and try and change it. Uh, (laughs) There have been a couple of articles in the paper that have already started. And so, uh, but uh, actually what happened, as you point out, Ronald Reagan came to office, of course, in 1981. Uh, One of the things he was most concerned about was, frankly, judges and judicial activism. Uh, He had had a record in the 1960s, early 1970s, of appointing some of the best judges in California history uh, and was acknowledged to have done that by people, both uh, Republicans and Democrats. He followed a governor then who had appointed almost everyone that he ever knew as a crony uh, to the bench in California. Uh, even to the point of having a, a number of appointments, uh, literally down to uh, the last day in office. Uh, that was the reason why Ronald Reagan was a, uh, took the oath of office at midnight that day, uh, so that, uh, so that uh, the first day that he could, uh, so that uh, he would stop this uh, this uh, cascade of, of uh, uh, let's say, charitably political appointees uh, to the California bench. So it was a matter of interest for him for a long time throughout his. Uh, executive career in government. Uh, and so he was very much interested in this and had given uh, talks about, uh, about judges and the kind of judges he thought we ought to have. Uh, secondly, uh, we had the start of the Federalist Society in 1982 so that there was a, now a, an increasing group of people who were interested from the law schools, students in the law schools, an occasional professor here and there, uh, and uh, even by that time now people who are entering into the law profession And then we had in the Department of Justice a number of very bright people, including uh, three of the founders of the Federalist Society, as well as others, who were interested in in this whole subject of constitutionalism, uh, originalism, and topics such as this. We had, uh, it was interesting, uh, Ronald Reagan was accused of denuding uh, the law schools of every uh, professor who believed in the Constitution by putting them on the appellate bench, uh, and uh, people had in mind, particularly uh, Bob Bork and, and Nino Scalia, people such as that, Ralph Winter and, and others later on, Frank Easterbrook and many others. But in any event, uh, there was a great deal of interest in the Justice Department. And at the uh, suggestion of, of uh, some of those people, we created a series of seminars which produced check, check. One, two, uh, one, two. under Steve Markman's direction, uh, what were called the Blue Books, because they took the various topics of constitutional government uh, and uh, we, on the basis of the seminars we had uh, put that information into these blue books. So it was a combination of what was going on in the Department of Justice, the president's encouragement and motivation and the Federalist Society all coming together that created what you accurately described as the perfect storm.
3: Okay, let me um, just go back on that same topic for a moment. In 1968, when Nixon ran for president, he campaigned on... Um, well, one of his, his big topics was judges. And I think what the term he used then was strict constructionist. He wanted strict constructionist judges. Um, and it's my contention that he had really no idea what that meant. If he did, um, it certainly wasn't manifested in the people that he appointed. After all, the four uh, members of the Supreme Court, he appointed three of them, if nothing else, voted um, in favor of Roe versus Wade. And I guess uh, Rehnquist was the only one who was really a conservative, and I'm I think that was probably just because of the luck of the draw. Now, when, um, when you came to the White House with Ronald Reagan, Ed, you were not relying on the luck of the draw to get conservative judges. Can you tell us what you did?
4: Well, we weren't relying on the luck of the draw. Uh, we were uh, really looking for people who believed in the Constitution and fidelity to the Constitution. And so uh, my predecessor, William French Smith, uh, and then uh, when I became uh, Attorney General in 1985, continued and uh, expanded Uh, The idea of looking into the background of judges with extreme care. I think the mistake that that President Nixon made was primarily relying on the ABA uh, for uh, uh, good professional uh, lawyers uh, to be judges without really uh, looking into or inquiring into what their views of the Constitution uh, happened to be. And that was one thing that we stressed. Uh, Beside the usual thing, the the FBI background check, the checks with uh, judges before whom lawyers had served, or uh, looking at writings uh, of law professors, uh, things such as that, Uh, we had uh, extensive interviews of everyone uh, who, before the name was uh, sent over from the Department of Justice to the President. And that included an interview with at least three, and often as many as six, assistant attorneys general or top people in the Justice Department so that they could really inquire into this person's Uh, convictions, commitments, or even understanding or even having thought about the Constitution as a part of being a judge. And uh, I think that was one of the things, this extensive background check on judges uh, that was very helpful in presenting judges to the president for his selection and appointment uh, who really believed in adhering to what the Constitution actually said and not substituting their own political prejudices or policy preferences for what the Constitution said. Now, I must hasten to say... Uh, that the record shows that this system was not absolutely perfect. <laughs> and uh, there have been occasions when uh, individual appointees of Ronald Reagan, uh, including on the Supreme Court, uh, have not been as constitutionally faithful as one might have liked. Uh, but uh, I think for the most part, uh, it certainly went a long ways towards uh, achieving the goal of having uh, judges who believed in taking the Constitution and statutes
5: as they actually read. And the, the Federal Society, of course, is help change the terms of the debate in terms of what kind of judges are we looking for of those that look worthy. How do they participate in a robust discussion? How do they get informed and get mutual reinforcement? And here the Federal Society has played a major role. I do want to mention that Al Redmury and his father played a major role in the early days of scholarship and that is Regnery Publishing Company published books by one of my uh, law professors, Sylvester Petro at NYU. Uh, he wrote the labor policy of the free society, a grand statement of uh, limited government, personal liberty, and property rights. And uh, Pietro was a major influence on me when I was in law school. He introduced me to Ludwig von Mises, who was then teaching at the Graduate School of Business at NYU. He never could get a permanent appointment, but he was a visiting fellow uh, financed by the Olin Foundation. And I had the uh, privilege of studying with Mises. Uh, and uh, when uh, Pietro went to Italy on a sabbatical, I took over a seminar that he was giving for the uh, law students. And uh, I have various people from Murray Rothbard to Henry Hazlitt and others come to NYU Law School in the early 60s for robust discussion of not merely conservatism, but conservatism, the free market and libertarianism. And this is where Al's book, I think may be deficient, I haven't read it yet, but I gather as the ascendancy of conservatism he may not have yet in the sequel that he probably will have is, every conservative who takes liberty seriously, ultimately becomes a libertarian. <laughs>
1: well, well
3: let, let's go there for a minute. Um, the Federalist Society, probably more than any other conservative group, prides itself on having both conservatives and libertarians. Um, maybe you could talk about that for a minute and talk about the, the, the strength that it brings to the society and, and how those points of view differ and how they
5: merge. This, I think, is one of the hallmarks of the contribution of the Federal Society: its leadership, its organization, its literature, its website, the debates, the programming. It's a robust discussion with libertarians and conservatives, but also in the debate aspect. When, when I when I was early uh, early on involved with the Libertarian Party, we Libertarian Party put on the best conferences in town because we had. Really skilled, thoughtful people from all areas libertarians, conservatives, and liberals. And the Federal Society has done it much better. So I'm happy to see that the, that the Libertarian Party has somewhat declined. Uh, the uh, Federal Society is ascending. And when we, when we looked, when I interviewed Ronald Reagan for, for uh, Reason magazine in the 70s, Ronald Reagan said, the heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. And he was truly a believer, far more articulate and insightful than many people in politics or in academia then and since. Now we have the benefit of young scholars, many of whom are members of the Federal Society, from Randy Barnett to uh, not just young scholars, uh, uh, from uh, Richard Epstein. Uh, We have a lot of uh, uh, really thoughtful people who are developing an appreciation of what the Constitution really intended to do by preserving not just oases for liberty in a sea of statism and regulation, but as Randy Barnett points out, this sea, the ocean, is liberty. The oases are the uh, restriction of statism. And I think that paradigm is being produced and fostered by the extraordinary intellectual discussion that we have at these events which bring people from all over the country and, and from Europe and, and Asia to get in a dialogue. And that's the, the, the essence. Look, as a, as a founder of Reason Magazine and a founder of the Reason Foundation, we've always felt that the role of Reason was to pr- preserve a framework for intelligent discussion of people who are devoted to limited government, minimal taxation, and take liberty seriously. And that's what the Federal Society does, and it does it with such gusto that we can look here and give thanks, shortly before Thanksgiving, what this organization has turned into. It's it's really extraordinary.
1: I uh, I, I think
4: Manny has a very good point, because there were always... Uh, uh, conservative and libertarian lawyers uh, around in the country. But it really wasn't until the Federalist Society that they had a way in which to come together uh, and express their views. I mentioned the other night uh, when we were talking uh, there at the the banquet that uh, many of the law school deans that I uh, met as I was uh, going around the country after I left uh, the government, uh, many of the law school deans uh, who almost all of them liberal, uh, pointed out how much they appreciated the Federalist Society because uh, apparently for the first time they had brought debate to their uh, particular campuses. And uh, it's an interesting thing uh, since the legal profession is well known for the ability of of lawyers to articulate their views, but uh, they just didn't have the fora in which to do it. And that's why the Federalist Society has been so valuable, uh, both on campuses of law schools, uh, but also in terms of the legal profession generally.
3: We're going to come back to law schools in a minute, but um, let me let me raise this other point, and that is that as as I've studied this conservative movement, it's interesting how in virtually every case of uh, the growth of part of it, it you can trace it back to something somebody wrote, somebody published, and I guess what it says is that as, as you all know, this is a movement of ideas, and ideas have an enormous Strength. Um, Richard Weaver, of course, wrote the famous book *Ideas Have Consequences*, and never was a truer statement made. And um, certainly, what Reason Magazine does is to generate, introduce people to ideas that, that prevail. Um, and in in the case, we, I want to come back to judges for a minute. Um, in 1972, Bob Bork wrote a law review article in the Indiana Law Review on the the appointment of judges. And incidentally, let me just say that that. Again, as I look at it, I don't think there's anybody that is more central to what we believe and what we're doing today than Bob Bork. (laughs) But, Ed, I wonder if you could comment on that Law Review article. I'm sure you've read it and you're familiar with it. Um, It was written eight, nine years before Ronald Reagan came to town and back when things were pretty grim, actually, in terms of the way judges were... um, were picked and, and confirmed and so on. Um, did that our law review article um, have some influence?
4: Well, it certainly did. And uh, I think that uh, that that article, not only in setting forth what the situation was, but also articulating uh, what judges should be doing and uh, how they should be faithful to the Constitution, was an, in, an important uh, background, uh, lit, like, literate, literary background, for uh, the kinds of things we were thinking in our administration and, and in the uh, Justice Department and ultimately gave way to uh, some of the speeches that, that took place during the 1980s and, and some of the writing that we did. Uh, I guess uh, you uh, are talking about particularly uh, uh, the speech of the American Bar Association which, which came in, to a great extent out of the ideas expressed in that, in that law review. Uh, in 1985, the American Bar Association, uh, at that time uh, not particularly noted for its conservative views. Uh, had had its uh, uh, the kinds of, of conventions that they had uh, only about every 16 or 17 years when they would have one session in Washington D.C. and then go to London for the second half of the same session, and so uh, a group of us were sitting around. I'd been invited to give uh, a talk to the, there as Attorney General, and we had uh, Steve and I were talking about this at lunch. So uh, Steve Calabresi, uh, John Harrison, uh, Dave McIntosh, uh, Terry Eastland. Uh, It's interesting that almost all the people sitting in that group, Ken Cribb, uh, Brad Reynolds, uh, are all part of the Federalist Society, just by a curious coincidence. And and so uh, uh, we decided that the speech ought to be more than welcome to Washington, but really talk about something substantive. And that was the speech in which we talked about uh, a a jurisprudence of original intent uh, and uh, specifically talked about some of the decisions of the Supreme Court in the session that had just been completed in which in the area of religious liberty and in criminal law, uh, and I believe property rights, uh, the law became even further muddled as it, than it had been before, and how, uh, pointing out in the, in the speech that with a lack of, constitu- of a constitutional anchor uh, as the basis for principled jurisprudential decisions, that the Supreme Court wandered all over in all directions, and that was why consistency and faithfulness to the Constitution was so important. Well, uh, as, as uh, you know uh, from uh, history, uh, like most uh, speeches given to the ABA, uh, that would have uh, never been heard from again, uh, except for the fact that uh, Justice Brennan took umbrage at this, uh, at the fine work that he had led, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, as a result, uh, uh, he uh, gave a speech at Georgetown uh, law center in which he attacked this uh, this point of view the idea that people should really look at the Constitution for for the basis for their decisions uh, was somehow anathema to him and uh, therefore he gave this speech well fortunately that he gave that speech as I say that was the greatest thing that ever could have happened to us and the Federalist Society uh, then took those two speeches and put them together in a book, along with some other speeches, check, and that check, really two, a lot of the whole uh, intellectual discussion about this whole subject of originalism.
0: Check check one two one two.
5: And of course, the debate is ongoing and robust. And this is again the there's no there's no scholar that we've, any of us have encountered who's omniscient and and doesn't need intellectual stimulation, no matter how far advanced the ideas. And what we see here is the synthesizing and the advancement of ideas of liberty. One of uh, one of, as good friend was a good friend of mine, Bernie Segan, who alas didn't get confirmed uh, for the Ninth Circuit, uh, was uh, authored one of the significant books on the importance of constitutionalism in, and the American Constitution protecting economic liberties and property rights. And there are many people here, Alex Kaczynski is here and others who have followed and carried that torch. but. It's not enough to have good vetting and careful uh, selection as is critical. It's not sufficient. What you need to have is an ongoing robust examination and continuing evolution. If we look at the Abigail Alliance case, we have interesting judges who do take liberty seriously on both sides of a constitutional decision, whether somebody who has a terminal disease should be allowed to take a experimental drug if the FDA doesn't feel it's ready to grant a certification yet. Is that a fundamental liberty in America, or is it an essential part of the liberty that we have as Americans under the Constitution? This is a serious debate that's ongoing. It doesn't get a better airing and a better uh, understanding than in the circles of federal society where people have different views on it. And I, that also I wanted to mention beyond judges, the front lines of public interest law for years has been a very aggressive, active group of people doing their best to advance the social agenda that was absolutely repugnant to the issues of limited government and private property. And that has been transformed tremendously. We just recently celebrated uh, a couple of years ago the 35th anniversary of the pro-liberty, pro-property rights public law movement in America. Ed has been involved in holding a, uh, with a lot of federal society people involved, holding bian- uh, biannual, I guess semi-annual, semi-annual, semi-annual uh, meetings, the legal strategy forms with leading public interest lawyers from around the country. The Pacific's Legal Foundation is given due credit for extraordinarily being a, a milestone and a landmark institution, but we have many other groups. The Actually, the original public law uh, institution that believed in limited government and the specialized area of labor relations and union shops was the National Right to Work Foundation, which Sylvester Petro is involved with. So we have this great tradition. If you look across the room here, there's a lot of people that have been doing public interest law and many law firms that are now allowing lawyers with a little bit of uh, pressure and difficulty sometimes here and there, allowing the lawyers to do pro bono work that isn't merely advancing big government. And that's, the federal Society has said, again, a major impact in that.
3: Well, let's let's talk about that for a minute, Ed. Let me ask you, um, reminisce back before 1982, 1981, when the left really had control of the public interest movement, um, public interest law movement. They had, there were countless, I can't remember how many, I I do know, I've seen the number of, people that were involved in it, but it it's a, was a tremendous number of lawyers. And incidentally, when, when I, was, um, I went to the Lands and Natural Resources Division at the beginning of the Reagan administration, the guy that had headed that division um, during the Carter administration had been the chief counsel of the Sierra Club before, and that was the kind of thing they did. I mean, he, And he was settling cases with his former partners um, the way he wanted them settled. But um, Talk about it for a minute, if you would, how grim things were in those days before our people came along.
4: Well, what you had uh, and the, the peculiar and, and uh, major source of revenue for all of these so-called public interest law firms that were bringing these lawsuits, uh, and they were lawsuits usually against uh, law-abiding citizens, uh, taxpayers, uh, small business people, things such as that, uh, they were all funded by the federal taxpayer. And the public interest law as a group was these various uh, programs That had started during the so-called war against poverty, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, when the Office of Economic Opportunity started all these law firms uh, around the country that were bringing these lawsuits. So what you had was liberal presidents appointing very liberal judges. And then you had these taxpayer-funded so-called public interest law groups teeing up the issues for these uh, judges to then move to the left on. And so you had... Uh, there you had kind of a perfect storm of a different sort, uh, which was the combination of uh, taxpayer-paid lawyers providing the basis for judges uh, to make uh, anti-constitutional decisions, particularly in the field of uh, property rights uh, that was, and uh, economic uh, uh, justice, uh, things such as that, uh, which was an almost a wholesale assault on business uh, and uh, property and uh, things such as that. So this was the conditions really that we came into, and that's why uh, we had just a few organizations uh, that started to counter this. The first one being the Pacific Legal Foundation, which was really the answer to to, uh, one of the major sources of these cases, which was uh, when Ronald Reagan uh, had the uh, welfare reform program, the most successful uh, program of its time in California in 1971, uh, the tax, these taxpayer-funded organizations brought all the lawsuits to stop the welfare reform. Uh, certainly uh, not something that uh, was uh, fighting poverty. As a matter of fact, uh, what it was doing was really uh, taking away forces that were helping to deal with the problem of poverty and was actually uh, perpetuating poverty uh, in California. The uh, California Rural Legal Assistance was one. Uh, there were a number of others. And so uh, this was the situation that, that was faced and why it was so important for the freedom-based public interest law movement to come into existence.
3: And until they did come into existence, of course, there really, if there was any opposition, it was scattered here and there. It was an article in National Review or Human Events or something like that. But there really wasn't any way of coalescing people that would would oppose it until um, this came along in the Federalist Society. Can you comment on that?
5: Well... The public interest law movement has been very important but just generally I think the, beyond the frontline lawyers who are involved in groups like Institute for Justice which is the prototypical law firm that understands how to find good cases with good plaintiffs on good issues and work their way up to restoring a recognition of economic liberty under the constitution. Not easy to do as we know. And uh, the Abigail Alliance case is sort of a uh, a big step in this process of giving individual consumers the right to control their bodies, their medication. Now, it's one of the interesting tensions within libertarians and conservatives, and we see this in the legal strategy meetings that we have with the pro-liberty freedom, uh, the the, uh, pro-liberty public interest law firms, is that we have sitting peacefully, civilly, and uh, having meaningful discussions among conservatives and libertarians who sometimes file amicus briefs on the opposite sides of issues like the right medical marijuana case or like the, uh, the uh, some of the uh, gay rights cases or other cases. It's kind of an interesting, friendly discussion where we agree on core issues and there's some issues where we have some significant disagreements, but always very, very uh, civilly. And we've seen an educational process in the court for those who really believe that government in a free society should leave people alone to preserve their, their, their talents, to maximize their abilities, to choose their livelihood, do not have to get a license, do not have to get government approval to publish something, to be able to go to get admitted to uh, a college or law school without regard to your race or your ethnicity or your sex. These are issues high on the agenda for those lawyers who I think most of us share. We take these ideas seriously. And there are some areas where we disagree, but the body and the strength, I think, of what we've done is forged this extraordinarily powerful coalition that when a case comes up, we have a network of lawyers to connect with. The Federal Society Pro Bono Project has been extremely helpful in in, finding and identifying and recruiting good lawyers from major firms to assist on a pro bono pay basis in worthy cases. This is something that didn't happen 30 years ago. Well that, That's certainly true, uh, particularly the pro bono uh,
4: bit which uh, the Federal Society has so, been so important in. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, a law student who, who wanted to uh, get credit for working in a district attorney's office uh, and went to the, uh, the clinical uh, program at his law school to see if he could get credit And as uh, was related to me by Steve, uh, he could only get credit if he worked for the defense. But working for the prosecution for the public uh, was not a source of credit. I think today even that is changing, just as it is in law firms. There was a time when pro bono work in a law firm meant working for some liberal cause. Today, uh, thanks to, uh, uh, quite frankly, the quality of the lawyers that are represented here, uh, the fact that uh, many law firms are now changing their policy and any uh, pro bono work, including that that advances the cause of liberty, uh, is also being recognized by many law firms.
5: Not, not yet in San Francisco, probably.
4: <laughs> well, uh, well, there's a lot that's not recognized in San Francisco. <laughs> and a lot of it is that we wouldn't recognize here. <laughs>
3: Well, why don't we turn our attention for a moment to the law schools? Um, we talk about ideas, and of course, in, in the law, um, many of the ideas in, in any, uh, any part of it are originated in law schools, the law reviews. Um, I think in my book, I mentioned that until about 1981 and 1982, the law schools basically were owned by the left wing. Um, you heard Spence Abraham talk about the problems that he faced when he started his journal at Harvard. Um, I know you've all heard about the first meeting of the Federalist Society and what, what um, probably a good many of those people encountered when they got back to their law schools, um, having been accused of being crazy or whatever. Um, Ed, talk to us for a minute about what, uh, what happened as the Federalist Society began to start no. chapters in law schools and how that began to co- contribute to this change that's happened.
4: Well, I think in order to uh, understand the, the change that took place, uh, you have to go back to some of the pioneers. And one pioneer who even uh, uh, was in advance of the Federalist Society was Bernie Segan. Uh, he was uh, undoubtedly uh, one of the great champions of liberty, as, uh, as Manny's has pointed out. Uh, but uh, he also was a very respected law professor at the University of San Diego. And he alone, I think, with the help of a perhaps a couple of others there, changed the climate of that university so it, was accepted, uh, it accepted other ideas. Uh, I know from personal experience because they accepted me as a professor uh, and uh, uh, that, was, that was a very good experience. There were some other law schools that at least would tolerate uh, people of a constitutional or conservative persuasion, but they were very few and far between and the Harvard experience was much more alike. It was probably all right if they had one on the faculty they could teach a course uh, as long as they didn't try to influence student opinion too much. And, uh, and uh, so uh, but uh, what really came about uh, largely starting in 1982 was an institutional way of students to organize and increasingly uh, with a very small start uh, professors to participate in something where they could join together with the uh, students and professors from other schools and indicate that there was really uh, other people who thought like them and that they weren't aberrant, strange people uh, in this uh, law school where they happened to be. Uh, and so uh, this is particularly true of professors, but it was also to a great extent uh, true of students. And of course, one of the things that I think helped the, the uh, Federalist Society expand uh, was the natural rebellion of young people. And having listened to the liberal dogma throughout most of their law school days, uh, there was kind of a natural reaction to say there must be something more than this. Uh, and I think that was one of the, the kind of spirit that permeated the people who got together in the Federalist Society and was the catalyst for a lot of the enthusiasm. Because all of a sudden, there was this idea of having debate, of having differing views expressed. And for people who had uh, different political ideas, the privilege of being able to express them without being exiled to uh, some sort of a a corner of the law school for uh, idiots and and other people who just didn't understand.
3: (laughs) How about law and economics? Um, Law and economics was getting started about the same time as the Federal Society, maybe even a little bit earlier. It was a movement that the Olin Foundation took on as one of its projects and spent um, a good chunk of its budget um, uh, helping get started. You've probably had some contact with law and economics. To what extent did that movement um, help set the stage for what what came later?
5: Another very indispensable element in the story that we're discussing here and how we changed the legal culture. And part of changing the legal culture was to understand the impact of the law of supply and demand and the counterintuitive impact of uh, laws that try to uh, ignore the law of supply and demand. And the, 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 so what, what we have, I think University of Chicago, Henry Manny, Aaron director, uh, Ronald Coase came in the mid, mid 60s to Chicago. Uh, the Journal of Law and Economics was being published from there. Uh, it came out once a year when Aaron was editor, he was a few years behind, but, uh, but uh, Ronald Coase got it all caught up. I had the uh, privilege when I was a, a big old fellow at Chicago and instructor on the faculty of work and with Ronald Coase and helping bring the uh, journal up to uh, uh, catching up and uh, also working with Ronald Coase in the course in law in uh, Price Discrimination. That essentially, I think Henry Manny is one of the really undersung heroes. Uh, Henry went from University of Chicago, to University of Miami, who was at Emory in between, and he has continued to contribute and to write. But one of the really important voices that many of us know and and, uh, have uh, been influenced by uh, Ronald Coase has been masterful in the whole, uh, the, the problem of social costs and his, his theoretical uh, understanding of basically common sense approaches to issues that many law professors and other academics uh, uh, felt that they, they didn't need to worry about. We, we had basic landmark approaches to legal to economic analysis that have now interfaced and interconnected with the law school curriculum. That's been a major impact. And again, there are a lot of people in this room that have seen it evolve or participated in the evolution and the growth. And that's something the federal society has, again, played a major role in. And we can see that from the people in this room.
3: Good. Um, I was chatting with Gene Meyer one day some time ago, and he mentioned that um, there are a lot of issues that if they were not raised by the Federalist Society in law schools, they simply wouldn't be raised. Um, and I think that's a very good point. You know, in, in any philosophical movement, there are sort of two factions in a way. There are those people that set the agenda, and then those people that live on the agenda that other people set. And I think a comment like that of yours, Gene, indicates to me that the Federalist Society is setting the agenda. Um, Ed, could you talk about that?
4: Sure. I think that uh, what the Federalist Society has done uh, is provide a a way for a lot of the issues to be raised, as you point out, and also for people to be respectable in taking positions that are almost unknown among most faculties. I think one of the most important, of course, was equality under the law and the efforts against racial discrimination in admissions and promotions in law school. And uh, this is one in which uh, it was now respectable in in debate uh, through the Federalist Society to uh, have a debate on on this kind of subject uh... which uh, led to uh... really major changes in the law school uh... now uh, uh... they they use terms like diversity and they try to get around it as much as possible but uh... you the, you still have the federalist society and others uh, motivated by this idea of equality under the law uh... to provide a, an opposing point of view uh... when law schools try to do this uh... they even try to uh... To uh, have uh, an increase in diversity and that is the diversity of ideas uh, and uh, something that law schools have not been particularly famous for uh, for the most part. So I I think that uh, teeing up these ideas for debate in law school has been one of the things the Federalist Society does, again by bringing in people from outside uh, to debate them uh, and uh, and particularly in in sessions such as this, uh, both in the student uh, symposium and in the lawyers conference uh, has been very successful and one of the things that, that has been so important is that uh, the Federal Society has not been afraid to have both sides represented. Uh, we believe in the marketplace of ideas and that uh, if you have the best ideas, uh, which we think are ours, uh, you're ultimately going to win out when you have these kinds of debates. Uh, Nadine Strozen, the president of the ACLU, is here, for example, and has been uh, a very good Steve Reinhart. Uh, you know, uh, hardly a believer in most of what people think here uh, is yet uh, appeared in many of our Federalist Society programs in, in California and in the West. Uh, so you have uh, uh, you have uh, the fact that we bring people who are strongly believe in ideas which are not necessarily the same as most members of the Federalist Society. But then in a robust debate uh, out of this comes uh, renewed and expanded thinking and ultimately what we think uh, is uh, ultimately results in the right position.
5: In, in uh, Talking about equality of rights, which is a major issue on our political agenda, uh, work Connolly is working uh, in five states now to qualify initiatives, uh, modeled after Prop 209 in California that ban uh, preferences and discrimination based on race and sex and ethnicity in government contracting, government hiring and government education. There'll be five states probably that'll have a chance to put that as part of their state constitutions. Michigan just enacted it was the, one of the greatest uh, successes in the last election was the uh, success in Michigan of the uh, proposition modeled after 209. And that came after the University of Michigan under Lee Bollinger spent uh, millions of dollars in legal fees to preserve the notion, which is very uh, common on the left, that merit should be subordinated to skin color in terms of admissions to colleges and graduate schools. It's one of the abominations, it's a sad story that not only is there a misunderstanding of what equality of rights ought to be on the left, but that there is so much lying and cheating in admissions in order to circumvent very clear prohibitions on doing what they think they can get away with anyway because it's so important for them to forget about merit. And this is an area where Rick Sander at UCLA Law School has pointed out the costs. This is a serious empirical study. If you're not familiar with, you should be. The cost of having racial preferences and admitting minorities who are not equally qualified with their peers to law school results in, as we would expect, Abby and Steve Thurnstrom have pointed the way, and others, you would expect, if you're running uh, an Olympic quality team, and you can barely make the C team, that you're not gonna do as well, and you won't finish as well. And maybe you'll drop out of the race early, and maybe if you finish, it'll be after the clocks have already uh, stopped timing. And in the case of law schools, there's been a significant racial gap in bar rate passage for minorities who are admitted on racial preference, uh, lower admission standards than their classmates. Who benefits from that? This is one of the areas where the federal society has been very helpful in helping expose and promote the understanding of the study. There's a lawsuit going on now, there's a panel I didn't go to, but I think there was one of our panels on the battle with the California state bar exam examiners who are having a difficult time finding that it's appropriate to let Richard Sanders Examine the data, race-based bar passage rate and failure rate data to continue his studies. And why? Why one might ask is the uh, committee of bar examiners reluctant to let people understand the real costs of racial preferences?
4: It's interesting uh, that you point out Ward Connolly's work in Michigan. Uh, It's very rare that the Supreme Court gets overruled and overturned, but they were by the people of Michigan uh, in terms of uh, that particular decision.
5: And and I might add, Ward has had the benefit of having a number of federal Society lawyers work with him, initially in California, uh, Gene Bolick, I've been involved, a number of other lawyers, in drafting and campaigning for the initiatives, handling the litigation, and now we see uh, there's always a need. If anyone's interested in looking for something really worthy to spend time on of the five states we're going to be in, which include Colorado and Arizona, uh, Nebraska, a couple of other states, uh, if you're interested in finding something really interesting, valuable way to make history and move it in the right direction, uh, contact me and we'll sign you up.
3: (laughs) Now let me just make one comment about the again about the law schools and particularly the law students. Um, As many of you know, I'm sure the Federal Society has a has a program every summer when they bring chapter presidents together. And I've been privileged to go to Ted Olson's party that some of you have probably been to on the Saturday afternoon. I guess the last day of that conference. And it's always astounding to see to talk with these law students. They are the brightest. They're the the best best educated, um, most articulate students you can imagine and who come, I guess, from virtually every law school in the country. And to think that, that um, when I was in law school, I finished in 1971, and Dave Keene and I were the only two conservatives in law school, and uh, we practically got tossed out every day. But to see these kids who are, are, are really the leaders in the law school, I think, is really one of the most encouraging things there is. Um Let's talk for a minute about the, the, the influence that the Federalist Society has outside of the Federal Society. Of course, the Society itself doesn't take positions on things, but um, all the people that are, 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 are the, the law students and the, the people that go to the lawyers' meetings, all the members of the Federal Society obviously have a great deal of influence on in their own right and the things that they do every day. Um, Ed, I wondered if you might be able to elaborate on that for a minute.
4: I think one of the greatest... Uh, Influences on an outside group that the Federalist Society has had has been on the American Bar Association. Now, it's probably hard for most of you in this room to remember back in the 40s and 50s uh, when Earl Warren, then Chief Justice of the United States, resigned from the ABA because it was too conservative. <laughs> Matter of fact. But uh, since that time, uh, the ABA changed considerably. I might say perhaps Earl Warren changed some of the views of the ABA. In any event, uh, the ABA uh, really has become a mouthpiece for liberal ideas, most of which, or many of which, the more famous uh, positions they take, are far beyond the exclusive purview of lawyers. Uh, They deal with all kinds of subjects that uh, moral philosophers and, uh, and others would have a much better right Uh, to offer expert opinion uh, than lawyers. Uh, Lawyers' opinions on many of these things are no better than any other citizen. But they claim to, uh, first of all, represent all lawyers in the United States, and secondly, uh, some expertise on these subjects. And uh, uh, what what has happened really is that the Federalist Society, through its ABA watch, uh, and by uh, just going to the meetings uh, and uh, letting it be known that there was a group of lawyers And law students and law professors who are watching the ABA, I think, has had a a material uh, presence that has changed or at least mitigated to some extent uh, the ABA going off on these wild swings of policy ideas uh, far beyond their uh, real purview. Uh, Leonard Leo has been particularly active in this. Uh, I'm sure when he shows up at the ABA conventions, uh, there's a considerable interest on the part of the officers about which sessions he sits in on. (laughs) And uh, and, but it, but it actually is, is the point, as Gene Meyer can tell you, where the president of the ABA came to sit down the, some years ago, started sitting down with the, the officers of the Federalist Society to try to, to uh, develop some sort of a peace treaty, I guess you might call it, uh, or at, in any event, uh, to uh, develop a rapport, because they recognize that the Federalist Society represents an intellectually capable and uh, considerably uh, large group of lawyers who have some strong opinions about what the ABA has been doing and uh, that if they want to continue to represent, at least supposedly, the legal profession, that they would have to uh, modify or or mitigate some of the positions they've taken. But that that ABA watch alone is a very powerful example of what the Federalist Society means for the profession. In addition to that, the fact that you have these lawyer chapters uh, all over the country now that you have uh, 45,000 people actively engaged in Federalist Society activities uh, compared to whatever the, the uh, uh, population of the, of the ABA is, which is probably somewhere in 350,000 or whatever it happens to be. But the main thing is a lot of ABA members are there because they get some deal on this or that, whatever it happens to be. Uh, the Federal society doesn 't deal in merchandise uh, or insurance programs or anything else, and so, as a result, the people who belong to the Federal society are thinkers and they want to do something in the legal profession. so that makes this group a particularly strong group uh, in uh, comparison with the aba and so I think that 's probably one of the most important things that they 've done. The other thing in terms of outside is it has been able to to stimulate uh, lawyers. Uh, And this has produced many of the candidates for judgeships uh, that as well as positions in the Justice Department and elsewhere that have uh, been available uh, when you had the right kind of thinking president uh, to appoint these people to judicial ranks. And I bet if you uh, look at uh, the background of many of the people who have been appointed just recently uh, by the president, as he announced the other night, you would find a, a Federalist Society background there. Uh, And this is one administration where you don't have to leave the Federalist Society off your resume. Uh, So I I think that's been
5: an important thing. uh, The ABA Watch is is one of the great publications of the Federalist Society. And uh, Leonard and uh, Gene have had this extraordinary strategic vision and also been extremely clever on how they've gone about achieving our objectives. So what was the clever and original idea with ABA Watch? Well, it was calling for a publication that essentially would simply report in their own words what the ABA people were saying without any commentary. Right. Yeah. 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 You what? know, it's, it's, it's that old political maxim, you know, if
4: you don't stop telling lies about me, I'll start telling the truth about you. <laughs>
3: let me digress just for a minute and tell you a quick story that I found to be most amusing, and that is, Ed mentioned um, Earl Warren, and we we're talking about judges and how they get picked and how they get confirmed. Um, it's, it's very interesting how Earl Warren wound up on the Supreme Court, actually. He was, um, of course, the governor of California, and he had um, he was actually running for president in 1952. He had been in a couple of primaries, and Eisenhower got to the convention. Um, Taft actually had more delegates than Eisenhower did. Um, Eisenhower was viewed as the one who could probably win, but Taft nevertheless was ahead. But Eisenhower needed California's delegates, and of course Earl Warren was the head of the California delegation. And it's alleged, and nobody really knows for sure, but that um, Earl Warren told Eisenhower that he would be happy to give him his delegates if... If Eisenhower were elected, he would appoint Warren to the first vacancy that came up on the Supreme Court. And um, apparently Eisenhower said fine, got the delegates, of course, was elected. Um, In the summer of 1953, Vincent, who was the chief justice, died very suddenly of a heart attack. And what people say is that within an hour or so, Earl Warren was on the telephone and said, (laughs) Ike, I want that job. And Eisenhower allegedly said, well... Earl, I didn't mean the chief justice. I just meant one of the other slots. And he said, "Look, Ike, you said the chief justice. He said the justice. I want the job." Um, within about two or three days, Eisenhower gave Earl Warren a recess appointment, and that's how he got there.
5: Well, it's there interesting. There are some better recess appointments than more recently <laughs> made, however.
4: <laughs> there's an interesting story. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not about how Brennan. Also appointed by Eisenhower, got on, and that was that. Herb Brownell, the Attorney General, had been at an ABA convention and heard this tremendous speech that uh, that Brennan had given, which sounded exactly like the kind of thing that uh, most of us would approve of. And uh, so he, uh, they were, there was a vacancy, and he recommended uh, Brennan to to uh, President Eisenhower, and Eisenhower. Uh, this indicates there wasn't an awful lot of checking done in those days. Uh, Eisenhower appointed him. It was only later he learned that actually it was not Brennan's speech at all. Arthur Vandenberg, who was the chief judge of the New Jersey Supreme Court, had written the speech and okay. was to give it at the ABA. Uh, v- no, Vandenberg, I believe. Vandenberg, I uh, anyway, uh, the chief justice of the, the New, York, New Jersey Supreme Court. And Brennan had read his speech. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 this... Uh, this later, uh, this later caused uh, Eisenhower, after he had left the presidency, to be asked by a columnist, uh, "President Eisenhower, did you ever make mistakes while you were president?" And he says, "Yes, there are two of them, and they're both on the Supreme Court."
0: <laughs> well, actually,
3: one other quick thing, and then we'll get back to business. When um, when Vincent died, they were in the midst of the debate on the Brown versus Board of Education case, and of course, the Supreme Court was tied in knots; they were split. They didn't. They, they couldn't come to a conclusion. And Frankfurt apparently said when he heard that Vincent died, he said, "My God!" He said, "That's the first indication I've ever had that there is actually a God." <laughs> <laughs> um, Ed, you were involved in the in the recent um, Supreme Court um, confirmation battle with uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Um, and there was a, obviously the Federal Society itself wasn't involved, but there was a good Federal Society presence. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and, um, and how that worked and the result and what, what, what the Federal Society lawyers brought to bear mm-hmm. that might not have existed when you first got to the Justice Department in the 80s.
4: I think if you, if you want to look at this confirmation battle that we had and previous ones, I think you have to go back uh, to what confirmations were like. Uh, prior to 1987 and that was they were sometimes contentious but they were always civil and they were usually limited to the hearings before the senate uh, in 1987 with the uh, vicious and pernicious attack on bob bork uh, by the that was another perfect storm uh, the democrats had just taken over the senate you had all of these very left-wing groups special interest groups that were spoiling for a scalp uh, and so you had all of this come together to attack bob bork and turn what had been a uh, a, uh, at least a civil confirmation process into really nothing less than a a political campaign with uh, television ads in the the states of uh, key senators as well as these vicious personal attacks uh, that were totally untrue in many of the accusations, uh, speeches on the floor of the Senate and things such as that. Uh, This continued, of course, uh, with the harassment of of, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, when he came up uh, notice how this was very one-sided because there is really a double standard between the two parties uh, how they take uh, uh, the confirmation process. Uh, for example, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was uh, nominated by President Clinton, uh, probably farther to the left than any person ever nominated by a Republican president in the opposite direction, uh, she was approved, as you remember, uh, without any fil- even the thought of a filibuster by a vote of 93 to, to 5. And uh, Steve Breyer, who had been a staffer, For Teddy Kennedy, obviously a a liberal uh, on the uh, First Circuit, Uh, he was approved, I think, 87 to 8, something in that neighborhood. Uh, Contrast that, bringing it down to the present, uh, with the uh, harassment and the confirmation uh, process that greeted uh, Chief Justice Roberts and and Justice Alito. Uh, And uh, what you have had is is a continuation, uh, unfortunately, by the other side in this case, uh, having uh, uh, the position of leadership uh, and the, with the threat of the filibuster that was used uh, even before they, they had the leadership, uh, the leadership now being used against a lot of the, uh, the, and the majority being used against those who've been nominated for uh, federal appellate courts. But with the two uh, Supreme Court uh, <coughs> positions in the confirmation process, it was very interesting that we had lawyers groups all over the country that were able to write in support to express their support in the, in the states of the key senators, which is so important, to write letters to the editor, uh, things such as that. And it was the fact that there was a, a, an ability to get out information, and nothing more than information, leaving it to individual lawyers to make their own determination of whether they would be supportive or not, that the Federalist Society uh, had that network to pass out the information. So I think that the, the keeping within its limitations as a nonpartisan organization and not taking a position on uh, legislation or appointees per se, but being a conduit for information, and then having groups of lawyers who knew each other in the local communities to act in support of uh, the nominees of this president, I think this was an important factor and will continue to be a very important factor because, uh, as we've seen, the, battle, the confirmation battles are going to continue at, not only at the Supreme Court level, but at the federal appellate court level, and that is extremely important since most of the constitutional issues and most of the key issues are really decided there with only a small group getting up to the Supreme Court. So the work of the Federalist Society, not only in providing nominees, but in providing support for constitutionally oriented nominees, continues to be very important.
5: Even if you have the moral high ground and the uh, benefit of sounder positions on the Constitution, you can get outgunned sometimes. And so this national network of lawyers and Federals who are involved in the vetting process and the uh, uh, writing articles and opinions and creating a climate of public opinion that lets people see that the judges that uh, sometimes may be unpopular don't necessarily have horns and tails. And they really are pretty bright guys and have a lot to do with applying the uh, rule of law in an even-handed way and really showing what the judicial system ought to serve in a free society. There's another
4: way also where the Federalist Society Uh, performs a function, and that is providing a platform uh, for these uh, judges and justices to be heard uh, once they've been appointed and confirmed, which is sessions such as we've had here. Uh, As you know, it's very easy for liberal judges uh, to appear before a lot of audiences uh, and uh, get great acclaim. Uh, There are far fewer uh, audiences for uh, the kinds of judges and justices we've had here. And so this also is, I think, a very important way of providing a platform, but also having a group of lawyers uh, as large as this providing support and letting these judges and justices know that there is a great body of the legal profession out there that believes as they do and wants to support them in their constitutionally oriented decisions.
3: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to turn and talk about the future a little bit. We've talked about the past, the present, um, and, of course, uh, among conservatives these days, there's, there's a lot of pessimism about where we are, um, that uh, the Democrats control both houses of Congress. There's not really a conservative, I guess some people would argue with that, running for president, or there may not be, and there's the, the possibility of another Clinton administration. Um, yet, as I sat in the Union Station the other evening and looked at that crowd of people and listened to those speeches, I couldn't help but be pretty optimistic. Um, there is there, there, the, the the left has tried to start, as you know, something comparable to the Federal Society. that's never really gotten off the ground. Um, there's no liberal movement in this country. There's a conservative movement. Um, the, I, in my opinion, the liberals don't really have much in the way of ideas on anything. Um, we do. Uh, where where do you suppose we go over the next eight or ten years, Ed? Um, what does the Federal Society have to do with that? And are you pessimistic or optimistic? Well, uh,
4: having uh, worked with Ronald Reagan... And I'd have to be optimistic, yeah, he always I was. was.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: but I think, as you point out, uh, I think one of the measures of the Federalism, uh, Federalist Society's success uh, is the fact that the left is trying to imitate it. They say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And so their attempts at forming something called the American Constitution Society is an example of that. Uh, they picked a rather curious name uh, <laughs> uh, uh, because uh, it ought to be the, the American Anti-Constitution Society. Uh, uh, they could actually, if they just called it the Anti-Constitution Society, they could keep the same initials. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, but I think, I, I think that uh, in a way, in a way... Perhaps it's a good thing to have this in law schools because then it will further the debate. And as I said before, in the marketplace of ideas, I'm confident that our ideas are going to come out ahead. Uh, but I think that uh, there's no question in my mind that, uh, as you point out, Al, uh, there really are no ideas, no new ideas uh, on the left. Uh, all they are is anti-something. Uh, for now, all they seem to be able to talk about is being anti-George W. Bush. Uh, but uh, they're, they're always anti-something or they are trying to advocate uh, same old, tired ideas, such as uh, socialistic policies for the federal government, uh, increased racial and sex discrimination in law schools and in businesses, uh, taking away people's property rights, those kinds of things which have always been the hallmark that they would disguise probably in other language than I've expressed it. But uh, that those, those constitute the ideas which have all been rejected uh, from the days of Ronald Reagan's campaigning in 1980 since that time. And so I think uh, I think that there's a great field. But on the other hand, the mere fact that they are organizing, that they're trying to make a counterattack, means that the Federalist Society is more important than ever. And it is important that we continue and maintain true to the ideas that have been expressed here in this conference, and also that we continue to enlarge our, our ranks. I think the potential for that is great, because as the Federalist Society chapters, now that they have them in every accredited law school and many unaccredited law schools. The the recruiting ground is great for people who will join the Federalist Society there and then continue their interest. The fact that we have so many successful lawyer chapters is an indication of the fact that people have found great satisfaction in belonging to the Federalist Society while they were in law school and wanted to continue that relationship. So I see a very bright future for the Federalist Society, but more than that, I see a very necessary future for the Society if we're going to preserve liberty as we know it. I, I
5: share Ed's optimism. Ed, Ed described himself at the outset as a historical artifact, but you can see he's a robust icon and still continues to do so much so ably. So and I'd like to just mention, in terms of what, where we're going from here, one of the essential areas that I think is urgently in need of major structural reform is the public school uh, institution in America in virtually every major city, which is accessible for any inner city kids and is not teaching even kids from good neighbors in the neighborhoods in affluent areas. Not, people are not being grounded. It's very much still a system for indoctrination, let alone not learning how to read and write those that are functionally literate, which leaves out a lot of the kids that start inner city schools. Uh, The need for school choice, school voucher program well-drafted in one that wouldn't give the state larger control over voucher-receiving schools, I think is an indispensable part of going forward for anybody that takes liberty seriously. We can't have universal franchise in a system of government that relies on universal franchise where people cannot process information, where people cannot understand the difference between demagoguery and real, solid scholarship. And that is a battle for us in areas of Social Security reform, health care, a lot of other areas where there are controversial issues that are easy to disparage and demagogue by the left. So public school, you know, I'm private. we should privatize schools just like we do newspapers and churches and synagogues. But en route to that, en route to that, a system that would empower parents to choose a school that works for their kids where kids can be educated and schools will be accountable and if they don't meet the requirements, the parent can take their kid out and go someplace else and they don't have to continue paying through tax dollars. So that's another item high in the list there a lot of federal Society people have been involved in that and I think that's part of the necessary for success.
4: You know, you point out another reason why the federal Society is important and that is to acquaint law students with the Constitution itself. Uh, this, this, uh, The the poor education that too many people have gotten uh, on key principles of American history and American government, including the Constitution, either in high school or in college, is is too uh, numerous uh, among young people. So at least when they get to law school, you would hope that people who are going to go out to defend the Constitution, the principles of our liberty, at least become acquainted with the Constitution. And uh, as I mentioned the other night, there are an awful lot of, of law schools that only teach constitutional law that is what the judges say it is, rather than the Constitution itself. And, of course, that's one of the bulwarks of uh, the uh, kind of information and knowledge that is stressed by the Federalist Society. So even in that, uh, they are very important in terms of shaping the ideas of people and the understanding of people who are going to go on to be leaders in our profession.
5: So the Cato Institute has made it very easy to carry their little pocket Constitution, but if you get go to an event that the American Constitution Society has and get one of their little... Uh, facsimiles of the Constitution, make sure it has a Second Amendment in it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also also make sure that it has the Declaration of Independence in it as well.
3: Well, I I know that all those bright young law students as they start having their own children, they'll teach them about the Constitution, so there'll be another generation coming along that will do all these good things. I think our time is about up, and um, I thank both of our panelists for participating and all of you for for listening and um, I think we we end on an optimistic note. Thank you all.